Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library, a space within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I've decided I need to pay more attention to some of the forms I sign. Across the table from me is... Hi, I am Dr. Sir Lord Toby, and I am an outreach librarian based out of here, Millennium Library. And across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor, a branch head of the Louis Rail Library. And before this book, I thought DNA meant do not answer, like if there's a stranger at the door. <laughs> a good book can carry me away from an ever-engine dear readers that we are in person again for the first time in over a year which is a wonderful thing i would go woohoo except i'm not sure if that would blow up the microphone so i just did, <laughs> i just did a conversational voice woohoo <laughs> hope that didn't uh, ruin the levels uh since it's been so long since we've been in person we're going to do a little bit of a check-in before we move on to the regular stuff um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about how Matt Ruff, author of Lovecraft Country that we talked about last month, he retweeted us. I suspected it might happen because he doesn't have many followers and he is a prolific retweeter. So I, I had my suspicions and he did it. And so it's exciting that he, he saw and interacted with that. So I thought that was very cool. I love it when authors retweet or respond to us. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, that's great. No, I was just going to say, I uh, for the very first time, this momentous occasion, I got a haircut yesterday by a professional. Oh. Uh, when uh, when COVID started, my wife Marla very kindly decided offered to cut my hair at home, and I thought it was great because I didn't have to go out, didn't have to. Hey, summer was great because I could do it outside, and then and then my 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 hair, my DNA would just. I feel like it was out there, like like the birds could use it in their nests, and I just felt like I was contributing to the circle of life. But then last time, uh, Marla was like, you know, you should probably go back to like a, a proper hair salon. So I did. It was fine. And I kind of, I came home, and Marla was like, mm, I could have done better. <laughs> so. Yes, I know. Probably most of our listeners have probably been for uh, a salon visit since then so i'm not really saying anything new i'm a very late adopter so anyway mm. but i felt like it was a, a step in the right direction congratulations thanks yes looks sharp ah sense. <laughs> and you dear readers we wouldn't do this without you we love hearing your opinions about the books we're reading so if you're of a mind to get in touch and give us the lowdown you can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page if you hang out till the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. In a moment, Trevor will give us a summary of the book, but first, Toby will tell us a bit about the author. Okay, Rebecca Skloot. Um, she was born September 19th, 1972 in Springfield, Illinois. Her father is an acclaimed poet, novelist, and memoirist, Floyd Skloot, and her mother was a professional knitter, which is a thing, I guess. Um, as a child, her and her father would actually act out parts of his novels together to workshop them, um, even going out to dinner as characters in order to help develop them. 
Uh, she was frustrated by traditional schooling. She was first suspended from school in second grade. That's not counting daycare and preschools at her father. She ignored homework and skipped class in high school. And in her first year, her GPA was 0.5. She transferred to an alternative high school where she could study what she wanted to and excelled, finishing the entirety of high school in one year. As we learn in the book, it was during a community college science class that she was doing for a high school credit where she first learned about Henrietta Lacks. Skloot believes she was so drawn to the story because at the time her father was quite sick. He went from being a very healthy 40-year-old to basically incapacitated due to a viral infection that caused some serious brain damage. Her father was involved in these clinical trials, so when she found out about Henrietta Lacks, she had a personal connection to someone who was currently undergoing something similar. Uh, her lifelong dream was actually to be a veterinarian. So after high school, she went to college to become a veterinary technician, then did a BS in biology with her eye on an eventual PhD in veterinary medicine. During her biology degree, she took a creative writing class and wrote about the university's animal morgue. It enraged the other students who went to the dean. Of this, she says, I thought, whoa, this is amazing. That was when I realized that I could combine science and writing in a way that would have a positive impact. She abandoned her plans to become a vet and enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh for an MFA in creative nonfiction writing. She knew right away that she was going to write about Henrietta Lacks, though she first envisioned this as an essay collection about women forgotten by science. Uh, she finished graduate school in 2007. A chunk of what would become The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks was submitted as her thesis. Three years later, in 2010, the final book was published. It took more than a decade to research and write. Uh, the book was on the New York Times bestseller list for seven years and was adapted into a movie produced by and starring Oprah. It was selected as a best book of the year by more than 60 publications, including Entertainment Weekly, NPR, and People magazine, and has been translated into 25 languages. She has taught writing and science journalism at several universities. Her stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Oprah Magazine, and Discover, where she has explored topics such as goldfish surgery, food politics, and wild dogs in Manhattan. She lives with her dog Clarence and her cat Phineas in Oakland, California, where she's working on a new book about animal research and ethics inspired by her years working as a vet tech. All right. So, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. In 1951, Henrietta Lacks died. She had an aggressive form of cervical cancer and was being treated for it at Johns Hopkins, one of the few hospitals at that time that provided treatment to people of color. Before she died, some of her cancerous cells were removed without her knowledge or consent, as was the custom at the time. Her cells were studied in the lab, and amazingly, they would divide, grow, and stay alive longer than any human cells had been observed to do before. In fact, with the proper care, Henrietta's cells could be kept alive indefinitely. Her cells are still alive today. Known as HeLa cells, for the first two letters of her first and her last name, they've been instrumental in countless medical and science breakthroughs, everything from the polio vaccine to the COVID-19 vaccines. And yet, very little was known about Henrietta's mortal life. In fact, for decades after her death, many scientists thought HeLa stood for Helen Lane, not Henrietta Lacks. Her own family didn't know until a reporter from Rolling Stone magazine came looking for answers in the mid-1970s. Author Rebecca Skloot first heard about Henrietta Lacks in a biology class when she was 16. In 1999, she began the research that would end up becoming this book, published a decade later. Skloot becomes a character in her own book, getting to know the Lacks family through her interviews and relationship building, particularly with Henrietta's daughter, Deborah. 
Through narrative nonfiction, we follow Skloot's efforts to help Deborah and her family uncover the truth behind what happened to their mother and why the family never received acknowledgement or compensation for the contributions HeLa cells have made to modern medicine. So how did you guys find the book? I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> I do read a lot of narrative nonfiction, I realize, without realizing that that's what it's called, because I do enjoy armchair travel as a genre. And a lot of times it's about a, a person who goes out in the world and writes about things they experience. And so with Rebecca Skloot putting herself in the story, I, that was a that was a sort of a, a structure that I was familiar with. And uh, again, I mean, I suppose this goes without saying, I thought it was an excellent book, extremely insightful, well-researched. I found Rebecca Skloot as a character strange and weird and, and problematic at times. It was a interesting choice for her to put herself in the book. I mean, I think her efforts to earn the family's trust were key to the narrative um, and her, the family's resistance to her as well. But I mean, I'm not a journalist, but isn't that kind of breaking the rules of journalism, like getting so invested in the subject and being so, so close to it? And it, it kind of, I don't know, it just distracted me and... I felt like she, she's almost self-congratulatory about it. Like she, it's at times she seems a little condescending. Like it seems like she wants to be considered a hero for, for writing this book. I don't know. Did, did either of you feel like get that or feel that way? You know, when one of the questions we had asked was about uh, the author being a part of the book, like a character in the book. And it's an interesting question. From a journalistic point of view, yeah, you try to be objective, but her interactions with the family shaped so much of the story, and it was really the only way to get the story from the family's point of view, to actually get a sense of what all of this meant to them and their family and to Henrietta and such. There wasn't really a way to do that without involving herself with the family. And because the family had already had so many experiences with people just coming to ask about Henrietta and the cells and how they never got answers for anything. If she came in and did exactly the same thing, it would have been further disrespect to the family. So she kind of had to actually build relationships to do it right. And at that point, if you try to portray it as an objective story about them, that doesn't seem authentic either, right? Because you can't separate yourself from the story. A lot of the stuff that happened afterwards was because of her. And so uh, I think she had to be a character in the story. I uh, mean, it would definitely be an entirely different book if she had left herself out. I think she could have. I, I can picture how this would have worked without her, but I thought it was an interesting choice that she made to make herself a part of it. I think you're both right, because with narrative nonfiction, it takes a certain type of personality, uh, maybe someone with a certain type of ego, to think that they're interesting enough to write about themselves and insert them into the story. And I'm not sure if Rebecca Skloot has the same kind of street cred, say, than some of the authors that have been doing this type of writing for decades. And Dennis, I agree with you too, because I, I feel like uh, it was a little bit like she was going in to do the research about Henrietta Lacks, realized she was hitting all kinds of uh, roadblocks uh, to gain interviews, and then maybe discovered along the way that 
the process of trying to get to interviews is also a story. And if she had, it was for a while that looking like she wasn't going to get anywhere with the family. And, and maybe she thought if she was going to write a book at all. She would have to pad it or, or rethink the structure of it. If she's going to tell, you know, the story of Henrietta Lacks plus the story of how she got the story of Henrietta Lacks. And, and that's sort of one of the questions we talked about was that there are multiple stories told in in this book the actual historical fact about uh, henry Lacks growing up there's the science part but then there's also like this modern present day telling of a, like almost like a uh, investigative journalism uh mystery about what, well, what happened to her what happened to her her daughter that was in the uh, the asylum and and all those things and it made me think a little bit we've talked about this movie before in the podcast adaptation the movie was based on this book, The Orchid Thief, by Susan Orlean, and it was thought to be unadaptable to a movie. And the, and the screenwriter realized that, yeah, it was adaptable. So rather than trying to adapt the books, he wrote a screenplay about the problems of adapting the book into a screenplay, and that became the movie called Adaptation. <laughs> and uh, kind of a little bit, it reminded me of that when reading this, that this wasn't so much a straight-up nonfiction story about this woman. It's It went meta right from the beginning. And sometimes it didn't quite live up to that first chapter like she was talking about how much henrietta influenced her life like when she you know got married deborah said oh it was because uh, henrietta is looking over you and, and you need someone to kind of support and then when she got divorced during the revoke it was like oh because the husband was getting in the way and i kept waiting for those kinds of stories to come out they never really did they never really transpired her personal side of things and so i don't know here i am saying that i didn't like the personal sides and then i'm saying i didn't get enough of them so I don't <laughs> i'm never happy in terms of having two aspects of the story, like the scientific aspect and then the personal aspect of the Lax family, it's like this could have been a book just about the science. Because the way Henrietta's life and the science part of it interact was really mainly just that one moment, right, where her cells were taken. And then from then on, the science was like entirely separate from Henrietta. It involved the family again when they wanted some blood tests. But from the point of view of the science, they were just investigating the cells and the DNA and trying to find ways to use that to cure disease and to test different things. And you can tell that story without saying anything about Henrietta or her family. The story of Henrietta and her family, I think, is harder to tell without the story of the science. It almost didn't have to be that way either. Like for 20 years, they didn't know that this had happened. The Lax family just continued on with life as it was uh, with the loss of Henrietta and the, the deep damage that that did to their family. But it wasn't caused by the scientific aspect of the HeLa cells, right? That didn't touch their family until they found out about it. And once they found out about it and then it reawoke the trauma of losing their mother and, and their wife and you know, at that point, their life changes because of all this other stuff that's happening with the HeLa cells and because people keep coming to them to find the human aspect of the story. Without any of that, their life would have continued completely untouched by HeLa except for the medical advances that it would have brought. I found that really interesting. Like Sometimes, you know, when they say ignorance is bliss, if they had remained ignorant about HeLa cells being from their mother, it never would have impacted them at all uh, in any way that they would have been aware of. But it's that knowledge that uh, people seeking that knowledge constantly that kind of brought it up to them and then just kept re-traumatizing them uh, and stressing Well, Deborah them. in particular. Deborah especially, yeah. <laughs> poor Deborah. Yeah, poor Deborah. 
when we mentioned the part about the author being a character in the book, a lot of that was because she was trying to give them an explanation for stuff that they had never had explained to them properly. They kept hearing about their mother's cells, but no one ever sat them down. I mean, the, the one doctor is like, here's a textbook. Yeah, he signed it. <laughs> and it's, yes, and he autographed it. And it's, and it's, it's written for like, you know, medical students who have been in for a couple of years. I can't understand what's in that book. And I've been to university, you know, just handing this to random people, or not random people, but just handing this to ordinary people who don't have the kind of education to interpret it and saying, here you go, that that explains it. It didn't do any favors for the family there, even though it wasn't intended to be a brush off. It was, it ends up being a brush off. Yeah. And that, and that's to me seemed to, to be the, the, the point of, of the whole book that these cells were so useful to science. And yet the, the person behind the cells uh, was virtually unknown. And uh, the fact that, you, Toby, you had said that there was problematic things about uh, Rebecca's character being almost like a, acting like a, a savior character. And it's true. There is that kind of idea that, you know, she comes in and helps Deborah find stuff about her long lost sister who died in the asylum and, and it tries to explain the science and gets her connections with Johns Hopkins and stuff. And, but yeah, it's, you do get this feeling that she's like, Oh, look at how, look at how good I am doing these things. And I feel like she, at one point she sets up a, a scholarship or, uh, I mean, I feel badly saying like, bad things about somebody that's doing something good but i agree there was sort of this element of i don't know it's sometimes it's, it's better to just do good deeds uh, anonymously and then and and there's an irony about that too because a big part of this was making henrietta's story known you put your name on that when you do it <laughs> Yeah. And it does, it did, um, I think, do a lot for making Henrietta Lacks' story better known and, more, you know, more widely available and to raise questions about the ethics of uh, researching on people's tissues and informed consent. Um, that was one of the big takeaways for me from reading the book was all of the discussion about informed consent and how it had not been a thing people considered for a long time. Reading it, I was always two, of two minds in the book. Like uh, when they were talking about uh, the guys, like George and Margaret, and their lab, and you know they had initially gotten those tissue samples because they were getting tissue samples from everybody that they could, so that they could try to grow them. And uh, my instinct when I was reading it at first was like, oh, how could they just take these tissues? You know, I was ready to go for that kind of a narrative. But when you actually read about the guys and how they were doing a lot of good work, and they were not doing it to make a lot of money for themselves or to make fame for themselves. Like they, he learned how to gl blow glass so he could make new types of containers to better put the science forward. As soon as they discovered something, they were sharing it with as many labs as they could so that other people could research and actually do something about cancer. And so many cancer treatments wouldn't have been possible without their work, right? The idea of informed consent in that context was just not something they thought of because their focus was on the research and how to best move that forward. And when you're focused on something like that, sometimes other little side factors don't readily come to mind, not out of any kind of maliciousness, but just out of, hadn't thought about that, too busy thinking about all this other stuff and trying to keep the lab running. Do you think the book suffers from almost trying to do too much, like taking a shotgun approach where it tries to be a, a family history and, uh, and a, a science journalism and uh, ethics and uh, other scientist biographies. Or did it, was it able to sustain the, 
the balance of all that or, or do you think it fell under its own weight? I think it managed to mesh all of those disparate things together into sort of a, a cohesive whole. I think while the Lax family bit is not necessary, it's it's a nice addition. It adds that human interest to to this story, which I think when you're talking about not medical nonfiction, um, you gotta you need like a hook. You need something like that. So I think. She did a good job with all of these stories and connecting them. The one thing I found quite distracting, again, like um, Scoot as a character, was the the level of detail in a lot of the things, like the color of the laboratory walls or like what someone was eating for lunch when Henrietta's cells were brought in or like the shoes someone was wearing because I would stop and be like, well, wait a minute, like, what question did she ask to get this sort of information? Like, this person is dead. Like, how, who did she ask? Like, she asked this person what shoes this dead guy was wearing at this exact moment. Like, how does she know this? So every time I would read one of those details, I'd be like, I, it would take me out of it. Because I'd be like, well, what, how, how did she find out this information? <laughs> I mean, there's that famous scene at the beginning where Henrietta discovers her tumor and like she's it says you know she goes into the bathroom she shuts the door she's in the bath and like Sklut says this comes from the medical record so I assume the doctor asked Henrietta these questions and then this information is on her medical record but it was just very it took me out every time to be like wait how what question was asked to get this very specific detail? Well, she mentioned in the acknowledgments, she acknowledged and thanked a lot of people. And one of them was uh, Mary, was it Kubacek or something, yeah, like, something that? like that? One of the people working in the lab with uh, in, the, in the guy lab. And uh, she said she had a very uh, detailed memory that she shared very freely during interviews. So I assume that that kind of detail came from her primarily. And I think she was also the one who said, you know, she, when they had done the autopsy of Henrietta, it was seeing Henrietta's oh red toenails that kind of drove home. Oh, my God, this is a real person who like who did her nails before coming here. To, you know, like that that kind of detail humanized Henrietta to her in a way that nothing else had before, because, uh, you know, you kind of detach when you're in the lab. So I assume that that was the genesis of that type of thing. But there's that with so many things, you know, not just related to the science parts that she's involved in, but like everything. Like at one point, Skloot writes about sort of the root of the undertaker through Clover. And I'm like, how? Like, who did you ask? Like, did the undertaker very specifically remember this drive? And like, you see someone on, sitting on a front step. Like, it's, it's so specific and detailed. Yeah. I wondered about that, too. And one of the things that I found just doing a little reading is Rebecca Sklut gave a shout out to a, uh, a retired school librarian in Clover. And she was saying librarians are great. And of course, we can all agree they are. But, I, but it wasn't <laughs> the fact that she was a librarian, I think. I think uh, Rebecca Sklut kind of, it was the fact that this, this retired school librarian was also sort of a, a local history buff. And she had all kinds of old photos and things of, of Clover that she readily shared. So that section in the beginning where she talks about the farmer that drives his tractor, uh, like as if it's a car, uh, she got that because there was a, there was a photograph of this tractor outside the general store and stuff. So she kind of inferred some things, I guess, from the sources, but, that had an opposite effect on me where rather than take me out of the story, it 
it helped me create the uh, the mental pictures that I needed to make this more than just a dry piece of journalism. Like the, the idea that I knew what color the the tiles were on the floor, or that kind of thing, added to the story. Where where I got fell out of the story were all the little sort of segues about people that she mentions a little bit of, and then I would have to put the book down, and then and then Google this one person, like that like that one guy in. Uh, Seattle, he would discovered that his cells were being used by the doctor that was treating him for all those years, and it seemed very unethical. So I went down a real rabbit hole with that guy for before I got back to the actual book. Yeah, I think this she mentioned too near the beginning was it the intro? How when she had been talking to some of them, uh, she talked about writing in the vernacular when she was writing dialogue from people. And that's one of those issues that can be contentious in writing. Like, do you try to imitate the way someone is talking in writing? Sometimes it's seen as um, paternalistic or um, sometimes seen as belittling the way someone is talking. Uh, I've heard that argument made before when doing that in writing and why you shouldn't do it. Whereas one of the people she had interviewed said, no, no, you have to write it out the way people talk. You can't change it because then you're taking that away from the person. You're, you're presenting them as something different than what they are. And so she said that's why she was putting everything in vernacular and putting the, you know, the way different people said John Hopkin or Johns Hopkin or John Hopkins and instead of Johns Hopkins. So she wanted to make clear that's why this stuff was in there. And I think maybe that was a part of why she was putting in so many details to say, this is how this happened. And I'm trying not to change any of it so that I'm not changing anyone's story unintentionally or giving you the wrong impression. So kind of like a very careful approach to documenting what you've done. But then that dialogue would be recorded, I'm assuming, you know, with Rebecca Sklute interviewing, say, Deborah, who's speaking in the vernacular, and then it's transcribed in the book. But like a detail like someone's sandwich, that's just memory. Those two things are not equal. No, but um, it sounded like she took a lot of notes, too. Like, again, looking through the acknowledgments at the end and things like that. It sounded like there was an awful lot of material that she had collected over that decade. Oh, those acknowledgments. <laughs> I love I love reading acknowledgments in uh, in books. I feel like it gives you a nice insight into the author's sort of personal life and what they were doing um, when they were writing. But I couldn't get through these. It was like eight pages of mm-hmm. dense acknowledgments. And to me, it like it kind of felt like, you know, when someone wins an award on like a TV show like the Oscars and they go up on stage and they start thanking like their dentist and their watchmaker and their personal assistant and then like the music starts playing and the camera starts like zooming out and you're like, okay, okay, like congratulations, get off the stage. Like that's a bit what it, what it felt like to me. Yeah. I feel like she was trying to be especially careful because the Lax family had often been given the shortened version of things in their life. They had kind of been given a quick overview and then not had anything explained. And I feel like she wanted to make sure that everyone who was involved in it, because there were a lot of Lax family members and friends and such that weren't mentioned directly in the story that were acknowledged for their contributions. And I I feel like that was kind of uh, just a very careful way of making sure she did acknowledge and respect everybody involved because they hadn't always been. I'm, I'm reading into it when I say that. Right, like. Funnily enough, that had the opposite effect on me. Like, like the fact that she <laughs> everything was, has the opposite <laughs> effect know, on I you, know, Trevor. Contrarian. Me, yeah, I'm a, a contrarian uh, today. Uh, the fact that she was writing in the vernacular to me felt very condescending. Even though I totally understand your point, 
Dennis that that was possibly her way of trying to make sure she respected the story. But well, well, no, she explicitly said that at the beginning. No, no, yeah. well, exactly. No, she does. Yeah, but then when I got to the parts where she was actually writing things phonetically or the way people would talk, I just thought mm, this just feels almost like she's making fun or making light like there was that scene towards the end when deborah was having that terrible attack of now was it high blood pressure um, hives hives she had the hives and uh, and she, her blood pressure was so high that the doctor was concerned she would have had a stroke yeah and yeah. she and she was there's a scene where she's like acting very erratically and and uh, rebecca excludes right there and they take her to the doctor and it almost like was written for, like i felt like for laughs like it was sort of like Look at this crazy situation I'm in, Rebecca said. Uh, but I, I just I didn't I didn't sort of like the tone of some of it. I felt uh, the same way about that scene with the oh the religious family member. There, it was it wasn't like Gary? an exorcism, but mm. do you know oh, what I'm talking about? Yeah, when uh, he was like uh, almost preaching out loud yeah, and holding her, Deborah, and then, to transfer the burden of the cells from Deborah to Rebecca. Right. And they were like praying and, yeah. you know, I personally, I did not feel like that was at all making fun. And again, I, I think this was a point that she express, uh, expressed early on in the book. And it's something I feel, too, is like a lot of times, like we don't know how other people live in different areas of the world and different economic circumstances from ourselves often. And a lot of these things, they are part of the culture and, and life of day to day life of people in that area. Like Deborah was such a complicated person, just losing her mother so young, being sexually abused by, was that her cousin or someone close to the family, um, an abusive husband, you know, anxiety, depression. Um, and as she said, she didn't know the names for everything that she suffered from. That type of person often isn't written about very often. And I thought it was, she was written about with a lot of compassion. I was imagining some of those scenes where, you know, being in the car with Deborah while she's going from topic to topic. And it's like, I, I, I would, I have trouble dealing with that type of conversation because it's overloading for me. But it's also a reality for a lot of people that uh, experience life that way. And I think we often hide that kind of thing in life, maybe partly from a fear of making fun of somebody or partly because we don't want to deal with someone else's drama. But I see value in showing that because often otherwise I think it's neglected. Like people don't think about people in the kind of poverty that Deborah and her family are in and of the dire circumstances they were often in. I mean, they were so poor that they often didn't get health checkups because they couldn't afford any health care. And that has consequences. And some of those consequences are the type of like the dramatic scenes where, uh, you know, if Gary hadn't done all that stuff right, then I think Deborah might have had a heart attack or a stroke because she was so worked up and that helped her. I do appreciate that Sloot included that scene where she just finally like almost lashes out at Deborah. Where, where there's a scene in the hotel room where she just kind of which I appreciate because it it showed that of course Rebecca is also a human being who is in the situation and I thought okay good you're not it's not totally you're this angel of uh, journalism coming in and solving everyone's problems like I did like the fact that she included that scene it felt very real to me to that part 
That was also a bit of a, a turning point in their relationship. At that point, they were riding in separate cars. And I think after that, Deborah trusted Rebecca enough to ride together. And so that really um, cemented their relationship, I think. Yeah. The building of trust thing was, again, one of the things that I thought was a theme of the book because Deborah's trust had been broken so many times. And again, part of the, a lot of that was communication, right? Like, when Johns Hopkins called and said, hey, can you come by and give us some blood samples? From the researcher's point of view, it's like, yeah, we just need some DNA to check these things, and that would be really handy. Please come by. And from Deborah's point of view, it was like, they're going to test us for cancer to see if we have the cancer our mother had. Uh, there's this fundamental misunderstanding that never really got corrected, and the whole time Deborah kept waiting. <laughs> that was part of what I think gave me the most anxiety reading it is that this whole time Deborah's sitting there waiting for results. She's waiting for answers because she thought that's what they were going to give her, and they never intended to because that wasn't what they thought they were asking. The fact that Deborah and her brothers uh, got some answers and actually got to see the HeLa cells and go into a lab and, and get that picture with the nice, you know, illustration so they could have something that they could see and touch and experience that helped give some closure or some understanding or some context to their mother's life and uh, death. That made me happy. <laughs> Yeah, I liked that scene a lot near the end with, um, I think, Christoph, the, the scientist who invited, was it, yeah. it was Henrietta and um, Zachariah? Zachariah. Right, sorry. Don't yes. mispronounce oh, his no, name. Oh, no, he's going to beat was... me up now. Um, oh, poor Zachariah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was a really beautiful scene with them in the lab and like them getting to actually like hold the cells in their hands in the test tube and like look through the microscope. Um, it yeah. really, it felt like a good moment of closure for them. Yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah, and that, doc, and that scientist, he was just so excited to be able to share this information. And he did it in such a kind of, a, I felt like, respectful way. It, that whole scene really stood out to me as being just a beautiful moment in the book. It, it also, like, he apologized. Like, Christoph, even though he wasn't the one who had done had anything to do with the initial gathering of the cells or uh, any of the interactions in between you like apologize he said johns hopkins dropped the ball they they didn't do this right and that kind of acknowledgement is something that had been completely missing for uh, deborah and her brothers the whole time so you know there's power in acknowledging when your organization or uh, the people you're with have done something wrong even if you didn't do that not your fault but you can still acknowledge that this is a thing that happened and uh, that the organization should have done better. It's interesting, like once in a while, a book comes along that uh, has such an impact on so many things like ethics and things like I went to the Johns Hopkins website and they have a whole section on Henrietta Lacks and this book talking about almost trying to defend what they did, but also explain what they did. And they sort of have this little um, col two columns where it had what we did in the 1950s and what we do now in terms of like informed consent and uh, and, and it acknowledges that uh, the, this book has raised awareness of a lot of issues that are that are out there. And I thought that that. If, if that alone is the impact of this book, then it was definitely worth reading and, and putting, spending 10 years of your life putting together. That was one of the questions we'd put out on social media, too, was about how Henrietta's tissue was taken without her knowledge and then used for countless amounts of research. Would you consent to scientists using your tissue for research? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I mean, I think... 
Is there a spot on your healthcare card where you can like sign? I, there was a some sort of card, health card or like blood donor card, where they ask you that question and they get very specific about like you know your organs and your tissues and. And I think I checked everything off except eyeballs. I was like, I was a little weirded out by them taking my eyeballs. But then I also picture when I'm filling out something like that, if I'm like taking my kidneys and giving them to someone who needs them, not like using my kidneys to study something or other. Although I guess that's that's a worthy cause as well. I remember a few years ago I had gum surgery in the back of my mouth on the right hand side here there, there was a kind of a I guess a gap after I got my wisdom teeth out and the surgeon said we, we're, we're going to we're going to put cells in there and you have a choice you can have cells uh, from a cow or cells from a cadaver <laughs> and I was like I don't like the sound of a dead man's cells in me so I went with the cow <laughs> So I don't know if I'm some kind of weird uh, Dr. Moreau hybrid now, but I have cow cells in there. That's so weird. Yeah. That's actually <laughs> kind of neat. Uh, you know, I think the, the thing you might have filled out might have been a driver's license thing. Oh, maybe, yeah. I, I do remember the organ donor stuff being on my driver's license at one point. Uh, for myself, they can take my entire corpse after I'm gone. And if they can do anything useful for it, like sometimes they take cadavers and they use them in medical school so doctors can operate on a body. You know, sometimes they take your organs to donate to someone else who needs it right then or they're going to die. If they used my cells for research that actually produced the tiniest bit of knowledge that uh, helped people and reduced suffering in the world, I am all for it. I've, I've left very specific instructions to be fully taxidermied uh, <laughs> my passing so that I can... Uh, be a burden to my uh, loved ones. You have to be displayed in the living room <laughs> 20 years henceforth. <laughs> Dusted regularly. Oh, dear. There's actually, um, so I'm Jewish, and when you're Jewish, you're technically not allowed to be cremated or to donate your body because there's this really strange part of Judaism where in, like, the far future, the Messiah is going to come and all the Jews, the dead Jews, are literally going to, like, raise from the dead like zombies and go with the Messiah to Israel. So you have to be – your body has to be intact for that to happen. Hmm. Um, but I don't I don't buy that. So, yeah. Yeah. Although I do acknowledge, too, like, people whose religious beliefs require a complete body for burial, you know, it's – uh, totally understandable to me that they would not want to have their tissues taken and used for anything after death. And I think that should be respected too. Like I'm big on the idea of consent for this stuff as I am with almost anything else. I think that's one of the directions that our society has gone that I most approve of over the years is that we're more and more about getting consent and giving consent and understanding what that means when it happens as long as you have consent and you agree with it, then, you know, go to town. But uh, you do have to take the time to explain it a little bit so that people understand it. Not like that. Uh, I think that was Moore, the, uh, the guy you were talking about in yeah. Seattle, whose tissue. And the doctor was just like, here's a form. Oh, hey, you accidentally checked the wrong thing on the form. Could you fix that? <laughs> oh, here it is. This thing. Fix this. Yeah. No, no. Come on. Don't be a jerk. Fix it. <laughs> It's yeah. like, uh, maybe you should explain a little more. That also brought up one of the reasons why informed consent is important because there's the power disparity between a doctor and a patient, right? Like he was afraid initially if he un didn't check it, that the doctor would stop treating him. And that can be a terrifying thing if you're sick and you need help. And 
you know. Yeah, you put your trust in the medical professional. Yeah, and even if you start to worry that maybe they're hiding something from you, it's like, do I ask? I mean, I know people who have had confrontations with a medical professional that resulted in a loss of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's terrifying. It's a terrible power imbalance to have to face as the as the patient. Um, and that's why, again, ethics review boards and uh, informed consent are very, very important. So I'm really glad that that was highlighted in the book. So any other comments about the book before we start moving on to our next segments? Would you guys recommend this book? Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, despite the things I mentioned that I found distracting. Um, I think it's a great read. Like, it, it really um, is illuminating and important. So, yeah. And the things that Toby found distracting, I, I liked. <laughs> uh, and found it again, but I agree that it was a great read. It read like a novel. Um, aside from those times, I got sidetracked on all the little side stories. But, yeah, absolutely. If you're... If you're looking for a, a good bit of nonfiction that's that's not dry, I, I, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I was expecting to enjoy it based on the, all the positive comments I'd heard. Like some of our colleagues have been telling us for a while to do this book because they absolutely loved it. So I expected it to be good. And it surpassed my expectations. I was really impressed with how balanced the author was in terms of presenting multiple sides of a complicated issue and doing it in, I think, a way that respected each of the sides that she presented, like showing them more or less how they would have presented themselves, not painting a picture that anyone would have objected to, uh, and being interesting the whole time. Like I stayed interested all the way to the end uh, and didn't feel like I wanted to skip anything. So it was a really good book, and I highly recommend it too. Hey everyone, it's Trevor here. Has it been a while since you ventured out and done something fun? Well, why not come out to the next Tales of Night Library Storytime for adults? Never heard of it, you say? Well, you can expect to see me and other WPL staff reading out holiday-themed stories while you enjoy a drink from the bar and maybe some food from the cow house next door. I recommend the cow fries. They're delicious. We'll even have a pop-up library at the event where you can sign up for library cards, get info on how to borrow e-books and audiobooks, or just say hi to Toby. He'll be there to answer your questions. We'll have prizes and contests at the intermission, and it's totally free. Just make sure you bring proof of vaccination and a mask. It's happening at the Goodwill Social Club, 625 Porridge Avenue, Wednesday, December 15th. And it all kicks off at 7.30 p.m. Hope you can make it. So speaking of books we recommend, we're going to move on to our next segment called Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? I've been staring at yours through this whole episode, Trevor. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm happy to go first. Um, uh, If what you enjoyed about the Henrietta Lacks book was the the science side of it rather than the the family um, story side of it, then I would recommend a book called The Vaccine Race by Meredith Wadman. It was written in 2017, so you know, before COVID, before the pandemic. And um, it looks at the research and development of vaccines in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, it does touch a bit on the oddball personalities of the pioneering biologists who came up with these vaccines, uh, specifically uh, one of the um, scientists, Leonard uh, Hayflick, who actually is mentioned in the Henrietta Lacks book. They talked about the Hayflick limit, which he was the scientist who determined that normal cells would divide only a certain number of times, about 50 times, and then they would die. That was known as the Hayflick limit. In addition to that, he created the uh, WI38 cell strain, and that was taken from an aborted fetus in from Sweden in 1962 without the knowledge or consent of the mother. So, sound familiar? 
So whereas HeLa cells were cancerous and immortal, so to speak, the WI38 cell strain were healthy human cells. So although they would eventually stop dividing, they were easy to copy and create new ones, so they have been very helpful in vaccine research, specifically the vaccines for rubella, polio, rabies, hepatitis A, mumps, and measles. His, his career was temporarily sidelined in the 1970s over allegations of misuse and questions over ownership rights of the WI38 cell strain. Uh, but interestingly, the dispute was between Hayflick and the U.S. government, but the rights of the, the mother of the fetus were never considered. And uh, Wadman writes about the questionable ethics of testing vaccine prototypes on children and adults without consent, uh, such as when they did it in orphanages and asylums and prisons and schools. So it's an interesting, interesting book for sure. And just as a side note, when we talked about uh, Henrietta's story being told, uh, in the index for this book, there are twice as many references to HeLa cells as there are to Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. Well, I read nonfiction. Um, it's not it's not the bulk of what I read, and uh, the science medical type nonfiction is really not my jam. So I had to dig deep for this one. Um, but I came up with a crowd pleaser, and that is "When Breath Becomes Air" by Paul Kalanithi. Have either of you read this? I haven't, but I I was reading about it. Oh. Uh, just but yeah, you know, tell us tell us more. <laughs> um, it's it's wonderful. Um, so this is a book. It's a memoir by a man dying of cancer. Kalanithi was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer just out of the blue when he was 36 years old. And at the time, he was a neurosurgery resident. There's this really interesting thing that happens where he goes from being the doctor to being the patient. And so he has an interesting perspective on that. And he writes a lot about what makes life meaningful. And it's a very short book. You can read it over a weekend. He was actually doing his PhD in English literature before he decided to switch to neurosurgery. So he's a phenomenal writer. He he did die while writing this book. His wife picks it up and writes the epilogue. But it's just, it's it's super beautiful. If you just feel like being a little contemplative and a little sad, I would be clutching it to my chest right now if, if I had it with me. <laughs> Sounds good. For my book, one of the things about The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks is it featured a lot of science. And also featured a lot of religion, uh, because the Lacks family is religious and uh, interpreted a lot of things in that light. If you're interested in where those areas intersect, you might also enjoy Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife by Mary Roach. Uh, description for it is, what happens when we die? Does the light just go out and that's that? The million-year nap? Or will some part of my personality, my meanness, persist? What will that feel like? What will I do all day? Is there a place to plug in my laptop? In an attempt to find out, Mary Roach brings her tireless curiosity to bear on an array of contemporary and historical soul searchers, scientists, schemers, engineers, mediums, all trying to prove or disprove that life goes on after we die. Mary Roach is an American author who writes about science, especially the weird and wild parts of it. I've read several of her books, like Stiff, which is about cadavers, and Bonk, which is about sex. But no matter what topic, she brings out lots of interesting, quirky, and fascinating things to think about, all delivered with a wit so dry you'll need to drink a glass of water after you've finished reading. There are lots of interesting stories in Spook. Uh, one of my favorite sections dealt with the various attempts to measure how much the soul weighs, for example. Things like having a corpse lying on a scale and then waiting until the moment they die and then seeing what happens after that last breath, like how many ounces come off the scale. Do any? Um, well, depending on who was doing the research, yes. 
Um, so it's a fascinating read, and I think anything that uh, Mary Roach writes is worth reading. She covers a lot of topics, so there's a lot of different stories in there. It's not a single narrative, but uh, just very fun. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we talk about words that have fascinated us over the last month. Well, we're uh, recording at the end of November for this to be released in early December. So we've just had Remembrance Day. So a phrase or word that comes up every year is, lest we forget. And you see it on billboards or uh, websites. And I thought this year is like, lest, what kind of word is that? I often misread it as saying, let us forget, which I think is the opposite of what the sentiment is. So I turned to our old pal, Miriam Webster, and lest is simply means for fear that, for fear that we forget, or it should not be forgotten. The verb following lest is often in the subjunctive mood, a mood that I am seldom in. <laughs> Where did this phrase come from? That's a popular phrase associated with Remembrance Day services. We know that in Canada. Britain, New Zealand, and Australia. So what do those countries have in common? They were part of the British Empire. So we can trace it back even further to a Kipling poem called Recessional, which was uh, written in 1897 and uses the phrase, lest we forget, as a refrain. This poem was written for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, and it casts a more somber than a celebratory tone, suggesting that as powerful as the British Empire appears at the time, one day it will disappear, and its power is nothing compared with the power of God. So not quite a celebratory message, but uh, something contemplative and something that's appropriate for uh, Remembrance Day. Incidentally, you can sing the words of the poem recessional to the Navy hymn tune, and some people do. But we won't. Oh. <laughs> you can go back even further and find the phrase in the King James Version of the Bible, specifically in the book of Deuteronomy. So I chose for my nerd word this month, lest. Lest that I can come up with anything else. <laughs> That's one of those phrases I, you just see over and over and over again, and you just know what it means from the context, but you never really think about it too, yeah. too much. So thank you for that. Oh. This month, I have more a person than a word. I don't know how I came across this person. Her name is Susie Dent, and she is an English lexographer and etymologist, not to be confused with entomologist. <laughs> and I came across her on Twitter. Someone I follow retweeted her, and I discovered her, and I started following her. It seems like she's a bit of a celebrity in the UK. She's actually on a game show called Countdown. But she tweets about all things words, uh, articles about words, things about words. She has a word of the day, and those are often quite wonderful. I was very, very tempted to keep her to myself and to mine her Twitter account for the sake of the segment. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought I'd be generous and share her with the pod. Um, so I pulled out a couple of her words of the day recently that really caught my fancy. Um, one is apricity, which is the warmth of the sun in winter which I thought was particularly relevant to today. And one I really, really liked is nod crafty, given to nodding the head with an air of great wisdom when you actually don't have a clue. <laughs> um, which I we do can, that so often. Yeah, nod crafty. So we can all relate to that. So if you like this kind of thing, um, she actually has a book. It's been out in the UK for a little while, but it's just coming out here. It's called Word Perfect Etymological Entertainment for Every Day of the Year. And it's currently on order for our system. So you can put it on hold. That sounds great. Yeah. I'm nodding my head as if I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Very nod crafty of you. 
So, as mentioned before, this month's book has a lot of spiritual and religious elements mixed in with the scientific elements, which I referred to in my book recommendation. There's often a perception that science and religion conflict with each other, and people often debate how this conflict can be resolved, which reminded me of a phrase coined by science popularizer Stephen Jay Gould in the 1990s, non-overlapping magisteria. What? So magisteria is the plural of magisterium, which is defined as teaching authority and which Gould borrowed from Pope Pius XII's 1950 encyclical Humanae Generis. Basically, Gould suggested that science was concerned primarily with the factual character of the natural world, while religion was concerned primarily with human purposes, meanings, and values. If you had a question about something in the natural world, like how long the earth had existed or why rain fell from the sky, you'd ask science, since science had teaching authority about facts. Whereas if you had a question about values or purposes, like whether it's ethical to inject cancer cells into a person without telling them what you're doing, you'd ask religion, since religion has teaching authority over values. There are other magisteria out there, too. If you're trying to find the meaning of beauty, for instance, neither science nor religion has teaching authority, you would need to turn to art. But since all of these magisteria did not overlap with each other at all, there really wasn't a need to perceive any conflict between science and religion. Problem solved. Well, not really. A lot of people disagreed with the concept of non-overlapping magisteria, and for enough reasons that it would take too long to get into it here. And even those who kind of like the idea often have very different ideas about where you draw the line between one and another, and how fuzzy that line is, and whether or not that line moves over time. Even though these criticisms and disagreements are out there, the concept of non-overlapping magisteria has had some staying power and is often invoked when trying to bring some peace to the science versus religion debate. Whoa. Yeah. It's, a, it's also a phrase that can get some people really worked up if you bring it into a conversation. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're reading The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweki Imizi. Raised by a distant father and an understanding but overprotective mother, Vivek suffers disorienting blackouts, moments of disconnection between self and surroundings. As adolescence gives ways to adulthood, Vivek finds solace in friendships with the warm, boisterous daughters of the Niger wives, foreign-born women married to Nigerian men. But Vivek's closest bond is with Osita, the worldly, high-spirited cousin whose teasing confidence masks a guarded private life. As the relationship deepens and Osita struggles to understand Vivek's escalating crisis, the mystery gives way to a heart-stopping act of violence in a moment of exhilarating freedom. Propulsively readable, teeming with unforgettable characters, The Death of Vivek Oji is a novel of family and friendship that challenges expectations, a dramatic story of loss and transcendence that will move every reader. Have an idea about what we should read next? Let us know. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read.
didn't mention your weirdly censored book. I, that occurred to All me right. during our, Oh, um, that's true. Maybe it can be a post-credits thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did I tell you guys about the <laughs> censorship in this book? Tell us again. My copy of the book actually had some passages where someone had taken little strips of paper that were marked with X's and glued them over a couple of sentences. And I couldn't figure out what they were censoring at first, so I Googled the phrase, and they were censoring the word fuck. <laughs> so it was just that scene where um, Rebecca got mad at uh, Deborah in the hotel, and she you know, says, you know, back the fuck off or something like that. They censored that. Dear reader, do not censor books that you don't own. If it's your book, do whatever you like with it, but don't censor a library book like that. It's there for people to read if you don't like the word close the book it sounds like a public service announcement <laughs> yeah it does but yeah that kind of thing drives me nuts it's worse than just putting notes in the margin or highlighting things it's like no leave the book there i want to read it 